Good morning. Welcome to Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. This is Palm Sunday, or the Sunday of the Passion. There is a week that lies before us. Remember, remember an old TV show from years ago called That Was the Week That Was, where they reviewed everything that had happened, all the news, all the important events that had gone on the week before. Well, what we have lying before us is the week that was. I urge you not to shortchange yourself. The lessons that we're going to be looking at today are the lessons for Easter. I urge you to, to use them to prepare yourself for worship next week, but don't shortchange yourself by neglecting the week that lies before us, the week that changed the world, Holy Week. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty God the Father, through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome death and opened the gate of everlasting life to us. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of our Lord's resurrection may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The appointed lessons for this coming Sunday, Easter Sunday, the Feast of the Resurrection, begin in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Please follow along. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Our text comes from a section of the book of the prophet Isaiah, which covers verses 24 through 27. The theme is set in the very first verse of this section, chapter 24, verse 1. It begins, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolation, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. This whole section really focuses on God's judgment on a world, according to verse 19 of 24, a world that is broken. If those were true words in the days of Isaiah the prophet, certainly they are true of our world today. A world that is broken. And what must our God think of the world today that is broken? He's got plans. On that cataclysmic day, there are going to be these events that are going to shake the world like never before. 
how our minds could jump ahead to the last day, but, but for right now, let's let our, our eyes and minds jump ahead just to Good Friday, when God issued his judgment on the sin of the whole world. And so in verse 23 of 20, chapter 24, it says, Then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders will be glory. The moon confounded, the sun ashamed, total darkness for those three hours from noon to three o'clock when the sun refused to shine. On that day when God passed judgment on the sin of the world. Verse 20, or chapter 25 then continues with this theme of judgment. But there are some key verses in the midst of it that we're going to be looking at. Verse 1 of chapter 25 begins, I will sing praise to the Lord, for you have done wonderful things. Through this cataclysmic event, through God's judgment, the people of God are saying, I'm going to praise you, because you've done wonderful things. Chapter 4, you are a stronghold to the poor and needy, shelter from the storm. In our section, he begins in verse 6, he offers hope to his people. The Lord promises that he's going to make a feast for all people. And then comes verse 8, the real focus and, and the emphasis of Easter morning. He will swallow up death and he will wipe away tears from all faces. So then comes chapter 26, which is a tremendous song of praise for the victory which God has won for, for his people throughout the world. And so we, we look at, in context, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, and it begins on this mountain. And so we look back to the previous chapter, and we know that he's talking about Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem. This is where it's all going to take place. The Lord of hosts will make a feast of rich food for all people, a feast of fat things. First he's going to rid the world of all of its evil, and then he will host a great banquet, a feast of well-aged, choicest wines, of rich foods full of marrow, one of the professors at the seminary, Dr. Robbie, calls Isaiah the wrapper of the Old Testament. And when you read this section in, in its context in Hebrew, Isaiah is kind of rapping at this point because he uses the word semarim and semanim. Choice wine, fat food. This is what God is offering to his people. This isn't their regular diet. This isn't just a, a, a feast that is fit for a king. This is a feast that will be hosted by the Lord of hosts. And it's not just for his people Judah. It's a feast for all people. Verse 7 continues. He will swallow up this on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all the nations swallow up a 
covering, a veil. And then he explains in verse 8, the Lord of hosts will swallow up death forever. He will bring an end to death. And chapter 26 then, remember I said we need to put this in context. Chapter 26, verse 19, for those of you who have your Bibles open, he explains it completely. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall arise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. St. Paul used these words in his great resurrection chapter that we'll look at in a little bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, he wrote those words that we hear so often at the cemetery. The words, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul is picking up these words from Isaiah and saying, God has prepared this feast of victory as he swallows up death for us once and for all and he shares that feast with us. He goes on to say, the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. There'll be no more mourning or crying or tears anymore. Obviously because death has been destroyed, death has been swallowed up, there won't be the tears of mourning. But what about some of the other tears that we face in our lives? What about tears caused by physical pain? Or financial problems? Or natural disasters? Or broken marriages? We come to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away from them every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the first things have passed away. As we think about resurrection, our resurrection, as we think about the joy of heaven and the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering of any kind, for the Lord has swallowed up death. And going on to verse 8b, the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now Isaiah was centered on the people sitting in exile and how they had been embarrassed and ashamed because they thought that they could never be defeated. They had this promise from God that a, a descendant of King David would sit on a throne and rule forever and they thought they would never be defeated. But then the Babylonians came in and overcame them and carried them off to exile. And so what became of God's promise? What happened to their faith? They were humiliated, they were disgraced, their faith was in shambles. Isaiah is concerned about 
that shame and that disgrace being taken away, God had allowed this all. God had humiliated his people as the first step in his redemption. So what does the redemption of God's people look like? The Lord will make this feast on Mount Zion. He will destroy death. He will wipe away tears and he will remove the disgrace of his people. What is it that the Lord Jesus accomplished on Easter morning? A feast of victory for all people. Death has been destroyed, tears are wiped away, and the disgrace that you and I bear because of our sins, all taken away. For the Lord has redeemed us. And so Isaiah 25 verse 9 says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might or that he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The good news of Easter, the word that draws us all together. You know, preachers love to preach on Easter Sunday. Preachers never give up their pulpit on Easter morning. The head pastor will always preach on Easter Day. Because people come to hear this powerful word. The church will be filled. People will be singing like no other time of the year. Because people need to hear this word. Death. That veil, that shroud that covers all of us. Has been swallowed up in victory. Fears are gone. Defeat is taken away. It's a word of hope, a word of joy that people desperately need to hear. On this day, on Easter Day, our people shout, Behold, this is our God. This is what He's done for us. It's a day of celebration for all people. Thoughts about Isaiah 25. We got a lot of ground to cover today. Well, the second uh, verse, the second pericope is 1 Corinthians 15, which really describes the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. St. Paul really saved the very best for last. This is the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. It's one of the church's greatest treasures. It's the heart and the hub. This is what the entire epistle really focuses on, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is vital to us. There, there, is a Luth there was a Lutheran theologian. Some of you may even have known him because he was a graduate of Concordia Seminary, even taught at our seminary years ago. His name was Yaroslav Pelikan. Yaroslav Pelikan said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. That's what St. Paul is saying in this entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. 
If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. There must have been some serious heresies going on in, in St. Paul's day concerning this resurrection. And so he wanted to make it absolutely clear that his people understood what he'd been talking about with them. There were some who were saying, according to verse 12, it comes right after our lesson, there is no resurrection from the dead. Well, this was leading all kinds of people astray, according to verse 32 of chapter 15. People were saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we might as well eat and drink and be merry, because tomorrow we die and that's the end of it. A serious heresy had crept into the church at Corinth. Some apparently were also saying, our resurrection has already taken place. They pointed to teachings of Paul like Romans chapter 13, or, or, I'm sorry, First uh, Timothy 2 verses 17 and 18, where people were, were saying um, they had, had served the truth, the resurrection has already happened, and they were upsetting the faith of many people by saying, and really misinterpreting Paul, saying, when you first became a Christian, you were already raised. You're already living this new life. It's not some future event, but it's already happened. And clearly that's not what Paul was teaching. Yes, we become new people. Yes, we are saved. Yes, we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. We are, in that moment of baptism, we already have eternal life. But the resurrection is still to come. And so Romans 13, Paul writes, Let us cast off all the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Yes, we put on Christ. Yes, we are new people. Yes, we have eternal life, but the resurrection is still to come. We know today that there are people who have all kinds of false teachings about the resurrection. There are some people in the church today who are saying you can't trust the gospel accounts. Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. He, he arose spiritually, they say. He lives on only in the memory of his apostles. And so we can't talk about a, an actual physical resurrection from the dead. Paul says, you're wrong. You are absolutely, totally wrong. It was and it will be a physical resurrection with a glorified body, a body no longer limited by time or space, a body that is suitable for all eternity. And that's what he's really talking about in these first 11 chapters of this great, uh, verses of this great resurrection chapter. Verses 1 and 2 begin, I'd remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul begins this great chapter with kind of a gentle rebuke. And he's used this technique a couple times already in this epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, regarding idolatry. In verse 12, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed when you're talking about spiritual gifts. Some of you have gone astray. In chapter 14, verse 38, he's talking about orderly worship. And he says, if anyone doesn't recognize this, then let him not be recognized. And now there are those people who are a little confused when it comes to the resurrection. And so I'm going to lay it out for you very plainly. I'm going to give you the basics. Here are the ABCs, the foundation, the first, the most important teachings of all. And so he begins in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is it. This is the most important thing of all. It's not about a dead Jesus laying in a grave someplace. This is the most important thing of all, the foundation upon which our faith, faith rests. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Paul had said these kind of things at other points. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, he says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just a couple weeks ago, um, Pastor Smith preached on this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for our sins. Isaiah 53, going back to the prophet, Isaiah said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's all about our sin, folks. Christ died because of our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. Have you noticed that all of the creeds go into this detail? He was buried. And why was it so important, and why is it so important for us to emphasize the burial? Because he died. He was dead. He was in that tomb. This is of first importance. He died, and he was buried. And all of our creeds that we confess, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, always emphasize the burial. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, Isaiah 53, the scriptures said, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, for the will of the Lord shall prosper in the land. This wasn't something new. The Sadducees somehow had overlooked the words of 
of uh, Isaiah when they taught there's no resurrection, there's no life after death. God had been saying all along, he's going to raise his son, he's going to give new life. There is life after death and there is resurrection. Paul taught the same thing, Romans 6 verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Not only did Jesus die and was buried, but he was raised and he continues to live. Revelation chapter 1. I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What difference does that make? Not just died and rose to die again and be buried someplace else. I am alive, I am the living one. Still today, at the right hand of the Father, he's alive. And on and on for all eternity. What does that mean for us? And for our resurrection on that day? Paul goes on. He's got died, buried, raised. And the fourth of the ABCs is he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Simon Peter. He appeared um, with Peter several times. He appeared then to the twelve, and, and here he's using the twelve as kind of a technical term. Actually on Easter evening, how many of the disciples were actually in the upper room when Jesus appeared? Twelve? Just ten. Because we know that Judas had gone, and Thomas wasn't there that night. And so when he says he appeared to the twelve, he's, he's not saying twelve people. He was saying the apostles were there and they saw him. Then he appeared to five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's as if he's saying, you want proof? Go and talk to these people. They all saw him alive. When did he appear to the 500? There's, there's nothing in scripture that says this was the time when he appeared to the 500. But I've got a theory about it and I'll tell you about it in a little bit. There were 500 at least who saw Jesus alive. You want proof? Go and talk to them. Then he appeared to James. And why was it important that he appeared to James, his little brother? Remember, James had had all kinds of difficulty believing that Jesus was the, the Messiah. James and his other brothers and his mother went to get Jesus one time because they thought he lost his mind. So James was having trouble as, as any of us would be if, if it was our big brother. And so he appeared to James. James who would later become a leader in the church of Jerusalem. It was important that James see Jesus alive. Then he appeared to all the apostles. In verses 8 through 10, 
last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In deepest humility, Paul mentioned himself last. He was indeed an eyewitness. It must have been kind of a painful journey for Paul to remember his past. To remember that he had been the one who had persecuted the church. He had done any, everything in his power to stop this word of resurrection and life. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians. When he personally met the risen Savior on that road. And so Paul couldn't take any pride, any claim on, on what, this, what had happened to him. It was all a matter of grace. He says in deepest humility as one who was untimely born, like a premature or a stilled birth, I, I didn't earn this, I didn't deserve this, but by the grace of God, I saw the risen Savior too. And he had a job for me to do. And he was so convinced that he had seen the risen Savior that he went throughout the world telling the good news about a crucified and risen Jesus. You want proof, Paul is saying, just look at me. Look at the changes in my life. What could account for the change that had happened to Paul? Something very dramatic. It was the absolute conviction that Jesus was living. And so verse 11 he says, whether it, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. The church was spreading this news, and the message was consistent among all of those who preached the good news. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared, everybody's preaching the same thing. It happened, folks, and it is happening, and it will happen because Jesus is the living one. I wanted to spend the most time today on the gospel, on Mark 16 verses 1 through 8. You know the story well. I want you to listen to St. Mark's account. Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. They were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You know the story well. But I want you to stop and think today as we begin this Holy Week. There is so much emphasis on the gospel accounts of Holy Week and the trial and the crucifixion and the place of, the, of darkness. St. Mark uses about a third of his entire gospel to talk about suffering and death. And so do so do the other uh, authors, the, the evangelists. They don't want you to shortchange any thought about the suffering that took place for your sins. The cross, the cross, the cross. We preach Christ crucified. And so Mark has all of these, these uh, five, verse, five chapters where he talks about the death, the suffering, the pain. And then he comes to chapter 16 and it's like, boom, there it is, resurrection. And he goes on. You may have studied the Easter accounts in the past. Every year we have a different version of, of the story. And sometimes there are, are people who get confused because they say, well, this one says that there were these ladies, and this one says there were these ladies, and there's the story of Mary Magdalene, and there's the, the foot race between Peter and John, and there was one angel, there was two angels. What really took place on that Easter morning? If there are differences, do we discard the whole works? Or can we put the whole story together, all four accounts, and make a consistent story of what actually happened. To help understand, imagine that you're standing on a street corner one day and there is a person who makes a, a left turn, an illegal left turn right in front of you and there's a nearly head-on collision. People are badly hurt there's all kind of damage to the cars, the, the ambulance is called, the fire department shows up. There's an accident that's taken place, and you're standing on one of the four corners, and you saw it all. Over on this corner, there's a police officer, and he saw the accident too. And over on this corner, there's a doctor who saw the accident. And over on this corner, there's an insurance agent who also saw the accident. And they've all got a different story to tell. Or they tell the story a different way. For example, you give your testimony, 
But now it's time for the doctor to give his testimony. He's going to talk about the injuries. Who was bleeding? What was broken? How the ambulance arrived? What treatment was given? Oh, he'd tell the details of the accident, but his focus would be on the physical things that happened to the people in the cars. Over on the other corner is a police officer. He saw the accident. What's his focus going to be? Who made the illegal turn? Who was in the right? Who was in the wrong? He would describe the accident from a police officer's point of view as if he was making a report, a legal report. And then you got the insurance agent. What's his concern? Who's going to pay for the damage? What car was damaged in what way? Who was at fault? And who's going to pay for it? So if you really wanted to know what happened in that accident, what would you do? You talk to the police officer. You talk to the doctor. You talk to the insurance agent. And someone would talk to you. And together you would all tell your stories and then a good investigator would put all four accounts together to give you an accurate picture of what actually took place. I think that's what we've got in the four different gospel accounts of the resurrection. All of them had the same thing that they witnessed. All of them had a, a different emphasis of what took place there. And all of them told the story and together we have one of the clearest accounts of whatever happened on that Easter morning. And so let's, let's look at some of the details. When the Sabbath was passed, remember Jesus died, we, we, we think it was somewhere around 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he said his last words and breathed his last. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, went and asked Pontius Pilate for the body. They hastily prepared it. They put on these, the, these dry chemicals um, and, and wrapped it in a shroud and put it in the tomb. They had to get their work done by sundown because at sundown on Friday, the Sabbath started. It went from sundown to sundown. No work could be done. Apparently on Saturday evenings, the stores open for a short time to let people get some of the essentials, like the 7-Eleven where you could just run in and get what you needed and, and get out again. They opened the stores for just a brief time. And the ladies apparently went to the store and they bought the liquid spices, the perfumes, to complete the job that Joseph and Nicodemus hadn't gotten done. So they bought the spices, but they waited till the next morning. Notice that it was the women and not the men who went out to the tomb. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to look at, at chapter 15, verses 40 and 41. It's the same list of women. And it said that these women had witnessed his crucifixion. These were the ones who had followed and ministered to him in Galilee and had come up to Jerusalem with him. These were women who had been there all along. 
Among them was Mary Magdalene, and there's all kinds of traditions about Mary Magdalene. But Luke chapter 8 says that she was a woman who had seven demons driven from her. And apparently she was one who followed Jesus and helped pay some of the expenses along the way. We don't need to say anything more about Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of James the Younger. Tradition says that she was actually the, the wife of Alphaeus. And then you do a little more digging, which would make her a sister of Mary, Jesus' aunt. And then there was Salome. And Matthew 27, verse 56 says that she was the wife of Zebedee, which would make her James and John's mom. There's, these people had been with Jesus. There was a, a close connection all along. They had come up from Galilee. They had sponsored his ministry. They had witnessed the, res, uh, the crucifixion. And now they were going out to the tomb to properly take care of the things that the men had not taken care of. And on the way, they kept saying, and, and it's, a, it's a, an ongoing kind of word. They didn't just say, who's going to roll away the stone? The one thing that was on their mind and kept bugging them all the way out was, who's going to roll away the stone? Who's going to roll away the stone? They were so convinced that there was a dead body in that tomb, their only concern was, who's going to roll away the stone? Not could it be possible that Jesus had risen. There's a dead body out there, and they were going to anoint it. Realistically, nobody was going to roll away that stone. It was going to stay in place. Remember, the stone was very large. And secondly, it had been sealed shut. And thirdly, there were guards who were told, you make sure that that tomb stays shut. There was no way they were going to roll away the stone. But imagine them plodding along, looking down, and suddenly they, they know they're in the cemetery and they look up and they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. Some of you may have been to the Holy Land and seen the, the style of tomb that this may have been. It had a, a track in front of it and the large stone could have been rolled in front of it and then rolled back again. That's not what Mark is saying. It wasn't just rolled back. It was pushed out. It was exploded. But it wasn't Jesus who caused the explosion or pushed it back. It was an angel. It was because of this earthquaking, powerful thing the, the guards had fled. The angel did it. And so when they entered, according to verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. This wasn't some kind of a ghoul who was the keeper of the dead, but this was one who had come from the realm of life and light. He was there to deliver a message to this, these women, not to console them in their time of sorrow. But the women are dumbfounded. They're alarmed, not filled with joy. They had gone expecting the body, and the only possible conclusion that, that flashed through their mind at that moment was somebody stole that body. 
Because we all know that Jesus is dead. That's the only possible explanation there could be. Somebody came and got him. But verse 6, he said to them, do not be alarmed or stop being so, so dumbfounded. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You're seeking this dead Jesus. Boom. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. They were expecting to find a, a dead body, but the good news is Jesus has risen. I believe that Jesus rose silently. I believe that Jesus rose through the linens because they were all laid there perfectly flat and the napkin that had been covering his head was folded and, and put in place. Jesus didn't roll away the stone, he just passed through the grave. He rose with a physical body, a body that still bore the marks of the nails in his hands and his feet and the wound mark in his side. He held it out before them all in the upper room so that they could see and believe it was his body. But now it's a glorified body. No longer limited, as I said, by time or space. He could appear on the side of the road walking with men and then disappear from their sight. He could appear in the upper room when the doors were all locked and then disappear just as quickly. It was a resurrected, glorified body that was suited for all eternity. So the angel said, come, see the place. See the fact he's not here. The body's gone. And isn't it amazing that no one has ever claimed to find the body. It's gone. He's risen. Now go and tell. And those are two imperatives, two commands. This is an option. He said, you go and you tell people what you've seen. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. And I, I like the, the order of this. Some people say that this gives Peter uh, an edge up, that, that already Mark was recognizing that Peter was one of the leaders in the early church. I think this is Peter's comeuppance. Peter had denied Jesus. Now go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen from the dead. And what must Peter have been thinking in that moment? What kind of mood is the Savior going to be in? What is this resurrected Christ going to do to me? What was the message they were to deliver? Go and tell Peter and the, uh, the disciples and Peter, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, we know that there were all kinds of appearances. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden later that morning. He appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. There was Cleopas and the guy we really don't know. 
who were just walking along with their heads down, talking about what had happened. They were going back to Emmaus, back to the way life had been before they met Jesus. When he walked along the road with them, and he opened the scriptures to them, and their hearts burned, and they invited him to have supper with them. And in the breaking of bread, Jesus revealed himself to these two, and you get the story of how they ran back to Jerusalem to tell the news. The disciples that evening were locked in the upper room, and the risen Savior came and, and appeared to them. And a week later, for Thomas's sake, he came back again. He met Peter on the seashore when he, he made breakfast for all of them. And he took Peter aside and asked him three times, You love me? And feed my sheep, feed my lambs. No question in any of their minds. But the message was, go and tell them to go to Galilee, and there they will see him. Get out of Jerusalem. Get away from the, the nasty things that the Jewish leaders and authorities are saying. Go back home. There you see him. And I believe that's when he appeared to the 500 back home without the pressure among the people who had heard and followed him all along 500 of them at one time they all heard and saw this Jesus and could it have been according to Matthew 28 that it was while he was in Galilee with these 500 he gave that great commission go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was something special about going back to Galilee. There you'll see him. And the command that he gave them in Galilee was, go and make disciples. Verse 8 causes people some trouble. It says, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They fled. They ran. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. Matthew says it was fear and great joy that had seized them. Are those two different things? Can you tremble for joy? Can you be joyful with fear? Absolutely. Imagine what those ladies must have been feeling like as, as they left the tomb. They had just witnessed something that no one, at least not any of them, had ever thought of or imagined before. Angels telling them Jesus is risen. Of course they were, were filled with all kinds of emotions as they ran to tell the news. Mark almost makes it sound that they didn't say anything to anybody. But we know that's not the case. We know that they didn't say anything to anybody on the road. They met Jesus on the road. And they went back to meet with the, the twelve or the ten, whoever were meeting, and they told them what the angel had said, the good news about the resurrection. And what did the guys do? They disbelieved it. 
They thought that this was just an idle tale, is the word that Luke uses. An idle tale? It's not going anywhere. You know, you put your car in idle, it sits there and revs its engine, but it doesn't do anything. It sits there. This isn't an idle tale. This is putting it all in gear. This is what the ministry of the church is all about. Go and tell the good news that Jesus is risen. So next Sunday we're going to gather together and we're going to be invited by St. Mark once again. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. You need proof. You need absolute confidence. You need hope. You need joy. Come and see. He's not in a grave anymore. He's risen. Go and tell. Our catechism teaches that the resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the Son of God. It proves that his word is the truth. Everything he said is the truth. When he says, cast all your anxieties on me, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, suffer the little children to come to me, when he says, your sins are forgiven, you can believe it. Because if someone tells you that he's going to rise from the dead and he does it, isn't that all the proof you need to believe that all of his other words to you are true? Your sins are forgiven. Let not your hearts be troubled. In his Father's house are many rooms. He's gone to prepare a place for you. It's all true. The Father has accepted the sacrifice of his Son for the sins of the world. And because Jesus is risen, we shall live too. His resurrection convinces us of our resurrection. His resurrection is the assurance that death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. You will rise with Jesus and spend eternity with this risen Savior. It's true. Come next Sunday and see. And then go and tell the good news. Invite your friends and neighbors to hear the good news too. As Yaroslav Pelikan said, if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and that's the word we're going to hear next week, he is risen from the dead. If he is risen from the dead, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Go and tell. In the name of Jesus, see you next Sunday for the celebration. Go in peace.